And if some of the people at the very front would start with these groups in the very back, back and see people's journeys, they would be changed. And they would realize uh, not only are these people working so hard at it, but they actually physically see what they go through to get to where they are. You know, I have people come up to me at races and say, you know, I know you won't believe this, but I used to weigh 500 pounds. And you're looking at somebody that weighs like 180 pounds and they lost 320 pounds. And they say, yeah, I couldn't even walk out to my car without stopping and sitting down. I had to like get out to the curb and sit down because I was out of breath. And now they're going to run a marathon. I'm like, how, how does this transformation happen? And I, I just, something sparks, something gets to them. I don't know what it, you know, whether they see a race or, you know, there's something out there. And that's, when we connect those people, that's when it's really gonna, our sport's really gonna take off. That's Bart Yasso, and this is episode 36 of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Hey, what's up, everybody? I'm your host, Mario Fraioli, and this week on the show, I have got an absolute legend joining me. I've got the mayor of running, Bart Yasso. This was an awesome conversation, one of the most enjoyable ones that I've had so far. Bart and I covered all kinds of stuff. We got into his career from how he got into the sport in his early 20s to getting his start at Runner's World in 1987, how that career evolved over the course of three decades and into his recent retirement in 2017. We talked about the state of the sport and how we can do a better job of connecting the front of the field with the back of the pack. We got into the current state of running media and how that's evolved in the last 30 to 40 years, but also just in the last five to 10 and where we see it going moving forward. A lot of great stuff in this conversation. That is just the tip of the iceberg. I really think you'll enjoy it. There's a lot to take away from it. So sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with the mayor of running, Bart Yasso. A abandoned athletic training room oh, here at the Anthem Richmond Marathon Expo, um, but nonetheless, we are going <laughs> to record our podcast. Bart, yeah, yeah, so welcome to the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Hey, thank you, Mario. Good to be on your podcast. So we're at the Anthem Richmond Marathon weekend. A couple of events taking place tomorrow. A few, I should say. We got a marathon, half marathon, and eight k. This is your fifteenth year attending this event. Yeah. So let's just start there. What brings you back year after year? You know, people at sports backers, they reach out to me every year and want me to come back and they have me do different things every year, speak at some of the dinners, uh, go to some of the schools, uh, speak to the kids. You know, it's, it's different all the time. Uh, tomorrow I'll be out on the course. I'll be uh, doing some race announcing at the start of the marathon then be out on the marathon course and then I'll be at the finish line most of the day. Uh, really just watching these people's dreams come true as they cross that finish line. Whether uh, I'll miss all the AK runners. I will catch some of the half marathoners and I will catch most of the marathon finishes. And uh, as you know, that finish line is a special place. The dreams come true when they cross that finish line. They absolutely do. And for you, I mean, you've been at... I don't even know how many finish lines you've probably uh, lost I, count yeah. of how many you've Way been at. Thousands. I I I I can couldn't even imagine. But you're at a lot less these days because you're you're technically retired. Yeah. But you came out to this event. <laughs> so let's talk about that for a minute here. Sure. How is retirement treating you? Yeah. So I did retire from Runners World Magazine in in January 2017, and uh, you know I tried to like really retire, retire and not work, but it's too hard to do. The running community is pretty infectious. And, uh, you know, I had so many requests to come to events. So, you know, I'm, I, I don't go to nearly as many events as I used to go to, but I'm still going to a few. And most of the ones I go to, I have a, already have a relationship with. So go there and, you know, do my thing, whether it's speaking or race announcing or whatever they want me to do. Some way to connect with the running community they they have at their event so uh you know i still love it i love what i'm doing so i'm gonna keep going as long as i can in your heyday how many events a year were you attending 
Yeah, so when it was when it was when I was full time in Runner's World for thirty one years, I was attending about forty five events a year, and that was on a global scale. You know, we went I went all over the world to do events, and uh, you know, most of them were domestic, most of them were in the U.S. But I did a lot of races uh, all over the world, and uh, it seemed that you know, I, people always said, "Oh, you get tired of going to these races." It never happened. Like I was having as much fun when I retired as I. Uh, as I did when I started way back in 1987. It, the, the joy never left. The travel got a little more arduous just because of my age and, uh, you know, Lyme disease had, re- had me in a pretty rough way health-wise, so it was hard to, to keep up with the rigors of travel. Uh, but once I got to the event, the joy that I get meeting people and hearing people's stories and following their journeys and seeing them finish races and being so happy, that that never, never altered. It was always at uh, just a joyful level. All, all the years I was at Runner's World and, you know, part of the nine years prior to Runner's World, I was still pretty heavily involved in the running community. Uh, prior to Runner's World, it was more on a local scale. I was pretty involved in the running community in the Lehigh Valley area in Pennsylvania. Yeah, and we'll go back to that here in a little bit, but how many events a year are you attending now that you are quote-unquote retired? Yeah, so in my retirement, I think this year I'll probably hit about 15 events. So that is a... It's about a a third of what you used to. about a third of what, what, you know, the old days, but but just seems like uh, a lot less pressure and I'm really more laid back and, uh, you know, uh, it's just, you know, it just seems fun to me these days. So you've attended thousands of events over the last several decades. How have they changed in that time? Yeah, I mean, to physically witness the change in our sport over the years, you know, I remember those races in the late 70s, early 80s, where it was a real hardcore group of runners. I mean, hardcore. And uh, and dominant by males. Very few females in the races in the old days. And, and there were not many races. Like, you know, you didn't have your choice of so many marathons and half marathons and uh there probably weren't so, 45 races a year you could have gone uh, no, to in yeah it was there were not Joking, a lot but. of races there were far and few between but uh and like i say it was really a hardcore group of people uh there was no people coming in you know five six hours in marathons and things like today uh and like I say, the biggest change that I physically witnessed is the amount of women in our sport. To just watch it go from going to a race in the old days where there were 5 to 8% women in a race to now going to a half marathon, and sometimes there's more women than men. It's an unbelievable change, physical change in our sport, and it's, uh, it's brought so many new people into our sport and knocked down the walls of intimidation, people who are afraid to do our sport because they thought they didn't fit in and... Uh, that's it's a joy to witness that and and just our sport to eventually become a big sport you know the sheer numbers 25,000 people racing this weekend here in Richmond uh just to see what we used to think you know I remember first time I ran you know like Boston and New York 1982 I did those uh first time I did Boston spring of 82 and of course New York the fall of 82 we thought you know, Boston, I think that year had 4,000 runners. We thought that was a lot of people. And then I went to New York and I'm like, 12,000 runners? How are they going to get 12,000 runners across this starting line? And of course, now, as you know, 55,000 people go across the starting line. So we never thought the sport would become as big as it is today. And they're turning uh, people away with yes. those types of numbers, yeah, which is even more remarkable. They didn't turn people away in the old days. People used to register, even at the Boston Marathon, people used to register the day before at the Expo. That stuff doesn't happen anymore. Now it's a tough process. And, uh, you know, it's it's just... But it is amazing to, 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 wit, to physically witness these changes. Uh, and I love that our sport has become more inclusive and really, we just encourage people to get out there and train and just come out and do the best you can do. And the finish line will be there for you. And what do you think spurred that change or that shift? Yeah, Mario, I think the change was the sport, you know, the, our, our race directors and our running clubs and our running stores, they just they just started accepting everyone. You know, in the old days, if you weren't fast enough, they kind of just, you know, they went out for these training runs. And if you didn't hang on, you were left in the dust and... You know, nobody goes to a place where they don't feel welcome. So you go out for a training run and everyone leaves you. You're not going to go, oh, I want to go back there next week. Like, that didn't happen. 
So I think a lot of the, you know, the running clubs, the running stores, and, and races figured out, okay, we got we to gotta help these people, convince them that this, this is their sport. They are welcome here. We are going to have people run with them. And once that started happening, uh, and then the percentage of women increasing, and then I believe women be- had the sport become more social and encourage more of their friends to do it, where the guys were still like very competitive and the women were like, no, you come in here and run with us. We'll, we'll take you under our umbrella. We'll make sure you get to the finish line. That's what I think really took this sport to the next level. And from where I sit, I see a big disconnect between the front of the pack or the pointy part of the pyramid and the middle and back, the base. Right. What can we do as people in the world of running to bridge that gap? Yeah, I always tell people, you know, there is this, uh, some of the people that are at the front of the pack or, or, you know, gifted athletes, they think some of the people in the back of the pack don't train and don't care and don't take the sport seriously. And I find out that's not true. They may just not have the best athletic ability. They may have a strenuous job and kids, a single mom, you know, whatever it is that kind of eats a lot of their time up. So they, they train as hard as they can and what they're able to get in based on their lifestyle, what they have to deal with outside of running. And I find that they really, they do train hard and they really want it. They are running as fast as they physically can. So once people realize that, that's when this gap, you know, we're going to bridge that gap. I'll, I'll give you a perfect example. It happened to me at this race three years ago. There was a woman who finished, and she was way back in the pack of the half marathon, way back. And uh, But finish line, the half marathon finish line was still open because there were marathoners coming in. And this woman finishes, and she said to John Lugbill, the race director of this great race, the executive director of sports backers, she said, I want a picture with Baryasa. Where is that guy? And John came and got me. I said, why does this woman want a picture with Baryasa? But John knew, of course, I would oblige and get my picture with this woman. And, you know, I, I said to her, why do you want my picture? And she said, I got to talk to you. And we hugged and got her picture together. And then I met her family, her husband and her kids. And here I found out this woman's battling cancer. And she was pretty sick at the time. But she felt that she went out and ran. She proved to herself that this was the way she could keep herself motivated and stay alive. And, you know, looking at her young kids and her husband, I thought, wow, this woman's awesome. Well, I got a message from her husband two weeks later as she passed away from that cancer. Two weeks after the race? Two weeks after the race, yeah. And when I look at I saved that picture on my phone. And when you look at this woman, the picture I have with her, like her smile and her eyes, like she, you would think she won the Richmond Half Marathon. She is truly the happiest finisher. And, you know, she knew how sick she was. She wasn't going to let on to me that she was really that sick. But she, but what she did share with me, the, how much it meant to her to be part of this community and part of running, just to, just she needed something to keep her going. Well, running gave battle. her life. Yeah, literally. And, uh, and after she did this race, and then the next weekend she did Philly, and then about four or five days after Philly, she passed away. And I keep that picture in my phone, and I look at that quite often. And I just think, you know, we never know when our last finish line is, but if, boy, I hope I smile like that woman when I go across that finish line. Because I'm telling you, if I sh- I'll show you that picture. You would think this woman was the healthiest person on the planet, the happiest person on the planet, and that she just won the Richmond Half Marathon. And she was clearly way in the back of the pack. But it didn't matter. She proved to herself she had reason to live. She proved to herself that this is what she wanted to do. And she, she was happy. To, she looked at the running community as like a place for her to find peace. And obviously she knew that she was pretty sick. She but was she was not going to say, you know, I'm dying, I'm sick. She was, everything she said to me was so positive. And, you know, she said it in front of her children who were young. And, uh, and she was, I consider her a very young person. So... You never know what those stories are. Well, like, I could have looked at that woman and said, well, you didn't train for this half marathon. It took you whatever. And that's not the case. That's the ultimate she, example of perspective if I've ever heard one. Yeah. She trained pretty hard for this race. And she, she raced pretty hard. The clock, you know, the, when she came in, the numbers were big on that clock. I, w- I will agree. But you just don't know. We don't know people's story. And uh, 
I, there's a quote in the, the last book I did called Race Everything. I said, when the gun goes off, we all follow the same course to the finish line, but we all have taken very different paths to the starting line. And that woman's a perfect example. Like her path was fight cancer, stay alive, love her family, and go out and be part of a community. And she did it, literally to the bitter end. And I think that's one of the most beautiful examples of why our sport is yeah. so special. And really what I try to do with this podcast and through my work is show that there are way more similarities between all of us than right. there are differences. I think as runners, especially the more competitive folks, it can be really easy to judge yourself by the numbers that are on the clock or sure. the ones that are next to your name after the finish line. It's like, I'm the 2.30 guy. You're yeah. the 3.40 gal. Yeah. You're the four-hour guy. And we really shouldn't judge ourselves like yeah. that. It's really, when it comes down to it, if you look at that path to the starting line, all of our journeys are different. But what we go through on a day-to-day -day basis to prepare for these races, there yeah. are way more similarities than differences. Yeah. And that's one thing Meb told me when I interviewed him yeah. many, many months ago. I agree. I, we, I mean, we all would love to be Meb Kofleski, Ryan Hall, Shalane Flanagan, Desi Linden. I mean, we would all love that. Who wouldn't want to have a Boston Marathon win and a, you know, a New York City Marathon win and a, a two-time Olympian, whatever it is. I mean, we would all love that. It's not reality for a lot of us, but you know, as you point out, the beauty of our sport is we run the same courses that they do. Uh, we train as hard as they do. They just run a heck of a lot faster than we do for some reason. But, you know, they, but naming those people, I, I know for a fact they love the running community just like you and I do. I mean, they, they embrace people, and, and that's, that has changed. In the old days, it really was, you know, the true elites. You know, they, they did encourage running, but it, they didn't spend time like they do today. It was different. It, it was a different world. And I'm not saying anything against those runners back then. It was just different times. Right now, we really are an inclusive group, and, you know, that's still fueling the growth in our sport. I was just at the New York City Marathon, as I know you were, and about a month prior, I talked to Peter Chacha, the outgoing mm -hmm. race director, and one of my favorite parts of that conversation was when he was describing to me how, in recent years, he has taken the top finishers to the finish line. Right. So they can see the last runners come through yeah. and how powerful that was. And the ultimate way of connecting the front of the pack with the back of the pack. Yeah. Obviously, not every race is going to do that or can do that, or that's even the best way to, sure. to make that connection. But what else can be done to help bring the front and the back together? Sure. You know, perfect. Uh, you know, I look at this race a lot, the, the marathon training team that we saw where, you know, they really, they, you know, this race, this Richmond Marathon takes people that today don't even think they could run a race and convince them not only can you run this race, but we're going to give you a training group to run with to get you there. And if some of the people at the very front would, start with these groups in the very back back and see people's journeys, they would be changed and they would realize uh, not only are these people working so hard at it, but they actually physically see what they go through to get to where they are. You know, I have people come up to me at races and say, you know, I know you won't believe this, but I used to weigh 500 pounds and you're looking at somebody that weighs like 180 pounds and they lost 320 pounds. And they say, yeah, I couldn't even walk out to my car without stopping and sitting down. I had to, like, get out to the curb and sit down because I was out of breath. And now they're going to run a marathon. I'm like, how, how does this transformation happen? And I, I just, something sparks, something gets to them. I don't know what, it, you know, whether they see a race or, you know, there's something out there. And that's... When we connect those people, that's when it's really going to, our sport's really going to take off. When that's people the transformative realize, power of running right there. Right. Yeah. When people realize, no, you, you are accepted in our sport. We, you know, tell your story. Uh, you know, one of my, la when, when I uh, really took down all this stuff in my runner's world office and realized, like, I'm really walking out the door. Like, this is it. 31 years at Runner's World, and I'm, I'm leaving. I'm ready to retire. I wanted to retire. I needed to retire for some health reasons, and I was ready to go. People have asked me, you know, what, what's the last message you're going to leave? 
And I really, you know, I thought about it long and hard. And the last message I left with and the, the thing I convey to runners all the time when I speak is people don't realize how inspiring they are. And I'm talking about people that finish towards the back of the pack. Like if someone who's lost 320 pounds, like there's other people out there that don't know they can do this. They think their destiny is just to be overweight and die a young person. But if they met someone who actually changed their life and used running and someone like that needs to use diet, but things like that, whether or battling cancer, whatever it is, this happens in our sport. And, you know, people, if more people share their story, they feel intimidated. They're like, no, I don't inspire anyone. I finished towards the back of the pack. And I said, trust me, you inspire people. When I went through all my files, I had these two files that I saved. And one of them was from this young kid, Nick. And he had a mental disability and his brain never really developed past the age of five. So even though he was at, now when I met him, he was a kid, 16, 17 years old. Uh, and he just, you know, he, he had to have somebody run with him because he would be like a five-year-old kid. He would just run off the course and not stop running. Uh, so his dad had to run with him, but he got faster than his dad. So then his brother started running with him. He got faster than his brother. So I said, the only thing with this, this kid just needs someone faster to run with. He could run like a 130 half marathon. And this kid always sent me letters, this big type, you know, and like written like a five-year-old. And he always called me his running friend, Bart. And I had all these letters that he sent me. And when, when he found out I was going to retire, he thought he would never get to see me again. I said, no, no, I'm not. I'm, I'm going to be around. I, I, I can actually come run with you. I have more free time. I have more time, yeah. Uh, but, you know, I, I never knew I could connect with a kid like that. There's a, another young man that I got messages from who's a young kid that lives right here. And he's uh, an autistic kid. And I, I knew his mom, and I never knew that his mom used to come to my talks and his son would be there. And I never knew I connected with his son, but I always would make sure I talked to him and would greet him. And one day his mom sent me an email, and his mom said, you know, I always talk to my son. I always encourage him to talk to me and tell me what's going on in that head of his, but he's very, you know, lives in that autistic world and doesn't say much. But she said, he started telling me stuff, and she was writing it down, and, he, and this kid said he wanted to be Bart Yasso. He said, everyone likes Bart Yasso. I want to be like him. I want all my friends to like me, but he said, none of my friends like me. So it was really tough to, to get that email, to think of what this kid goes through, but that's when I realized that I connected with this kid without knowing it. So that's the message I send on the people. You don't, the people that you connect with don't run up to you and say, hey, you inspire me, you connect with me but they're there. Yeah. I think the two biggest things, themes that we've touched on so far in this conversation are one, you never know what someone else is going through. Yeah. Um, and that can be inspiring and bringing that a step further. You never know who you're going to inspire. And it could be the littlest thing that yep. to you is an automatic reflex or something you don't yeah, think twice right. about right. and someone else is profoundly affected by it. And that's a beautiful thing. Yeah. And you, like I say, you don't, I, if that woman would have never sent me that email, I would never know it. But she sent me that email. This is what my son said today. And uh, it's, it's powerful to me. Like I just, I didn't, I'm not trained to inspire autistic kids or I never, I didn't sit out to say, okay, this kid's autistic. I'm There's no class for him. that though. There is no, yeah. But somehow our sport can do it. It can bridge all these gaps that other sports can't do. And that's what really makes special, running very special. We are really... Uh, the sport for everybody. I'd love to dig back into your origins now for a sure. little bit. You had mentioned, we're not going to go right to the beginning just yet, but let's go pretty darn close. So okay. you started Runner's World 1987. 1987. You were there for yep. 31 years. You had yep. mentioned briefly how you were involved on a local level before that. Mm -hmm. What brought you to Runner's World? Yeah, so Runner's World was purchased by Rodale, the Rodale family, in 1985. And at the time, you know, moved the office to Pennsylvania where I was living. And uh, after the editors that moved with the magazine, I got to meet Amby Burfoot and Bob Wishney and all the people that worked there, George Hirsch. Uh, and somehow those guys took a liking to me and they liked what I was doing with the local current running community. And I was running well at the time, but, you know, on a local scale, like, a, you know, an age group 
guy. Uh, Beyond that, that, what were you doing in the community that caught oh, their so attention? I was vice president of the running club and active being a race director and just active in the running club, starting groups, youth running, all that kind of stuff. So I think that's what draw their, drew their attention to me and said, okay, this is a guy that we want to go out to the public and represent us because what he's doing is exactly what we need to grow the magazine. And uh, so, you know, when I started at Runner's World back in 87, I just remember walking in that door and, and I said to myself, I said, you know, this is, a, this is a monumental deal for me. This is a door that I never thought would have opened for me. I am going to work harder than anyone, not at Runner's World, not at the company Rodale that owned Runner's World. I convinced myself I was going to work harder than anyone in the running industry at not only growing the sport, but at my job. And I just felt I had that opportunity. And I wasn't going to just take it half-heartedly. I went full bore from the day I walked in that door. For 31 years. For 31 years, yeah. And I went full bore right to the very end. And, uh, and you know, that's why I stepped away, because I just couldn't do it anymore physically. And I didn't want to do it half-heartedly. Uh, but I really, you know, and I'm not saying I worked harder than anyone else in the running industry. I tried to, I mean, that's the goal I set for myself. And uh, I know I worked pretty hard, uh, but it was, I just felt it's an opportunity I can't pass up. And I, I just felt it was uh, the best job for me. You know, I, I always said about my job at Runner's World, like if I, if I were to write a job description, the job I did was the job description I would write. And I know most people don't get to that opportunity in their life. And I felt I had that opportunity. I was going to make the best of it. How did your role evolve over the course of those three decades? So it's over three decades, it really, a lot had to do with the way the sport was changing and then what I was doing at Runner's World. Originally, I was the guy going out to races and just being that liaison between the running community and Runner's World and trying to grow the magazine. And then uh, David Willey had me doing more editorial stuff when he came along. And, uh, and then it just became, you know, in the last, say, 10 years that I was there, it was more on the strategic things we should do long term and, and really how we could be a successful, you know, in all the strategy meetings that we had and where's our sport going and how do we integrate the magazine and the website and all the changes that kept happening in publishing. And Mario, you worked in publishing for many years, you know the, the changes. So it was, uh, you know, they really relied on me to not only deal with the changes in the sport, but also how do we then make Runner's World successful in all those changes. So it was always a challenge and I, I worked with some very talented people George Hirsch, Amby Burfoot, you know, you know the names. They were, I felt I was surrounded by talented people, which helped me out tremendously. Let's put a pin in that changing media landscape topic for yeah. a second. We'll come back to it. Okay. But from the beginning, you were the boots on the ground guy. You went to all these I, different yeah, events. I did, all these different, yeah. You did up until just over a year ago, but... And that never really stopped. If anything, it just well, increased yeah, it's in true. its intensity. But in those last 10 years, as you had alluded to, the role of media, especially on the digital side, sure. started to really have an effect on, on your job. Was that hard oh, for yeah. you to transition into that digital sphere as a means of connecting sure. with other runners that you weren't physically having an interaction with at an yeah. event? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point, Mara. I actually loved it. I loved the digital world when it came along because I thought we could get messages out instantaneously and we could communicate better. When social media came along, I grasped it right from the beginning and thought, this is, this is just a way to stay more connected with people. Uh, so I loved it. But it was harder financially to figure out how to make up for some of these changes. You know, people thought, well, I don't have to buy the subscription anymore. I'll just read what's online. And we weren't charging for what was online. So it's things like that that we had to figure out how to keep being successful so we could keep being a brand that's, you know, pretty powerful in the running space. Uh, but it was a challenge. There's no doubt about it. Uh, you know, but I gave my best input what I thought was going to happen in the future of running. And None of us knew for sure, but we, but we had a, the group of people I worked with, we had a pretty good handle on the changes that were coming down the road. And obviously, if you uh, can prepare in advance and at least think of some of the changes and be almost right, uh, then I think, you, you know, that kept us successful for quite a while. 
looking back, where do you think, not just specifically Runner's World, but run, endemic running media brands in general failed to keep up with what yeah. was changing in the greater media landscape? Because I worked in it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, <laughs> I'm still in it in my own way, but right. I was at a competing publication. Yeah. I saw how fast yeah. those things were happening. I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Sure. Well, I thought so... And you also worked in the newspaper industry at first, so you mm -hmm. saw that really affect the newspaper industry before the magazine industry. So newspapers struggle right away. And then eventually, I'm going to say, I'm going to eight to ten years later, what happened to newspapers happened to magazines. Uh, so, I mean, but I, I, it was just inevitable, you know. I always used to say when, you know, I spent a lot of time in hotels, and I used to say when, you know, I check out a hotel and come out of my room and, you know, there's a whole hall of doors are going to open up, people checking out. I could tell if someone's going to pick up the newspaper that was left at their door. You know, I'd pick it up because I'd read that newspaper on the plane ride home. Young people, they would roll over that newspaper with their luggage. They wouldn't even, they wouldn't even look down at it. And so there really is a generational thing going on there. Uh, you know, I grew up reading a newspaper and really loved it and just having a physical magazine meant a lot to me because I liked the images and, you know, the way you just follow a story. Uh, but, you know, I also read a lot of stories digitally these days. But, I, you know, I just think that generation thing that uh, newspapers and magazines are just obviously not read like the old days because obviously, you know, it wouldn't be cutting back the amount of magazines they're printing and the, the amount of circulation they're printing. And, uh, but it's a tough change because, uh, you know, print publishing was a lot of fun to work in. And I like working in the digital space, but digital space, as you know, is harder to figure out financially than it is from an editorial standpoint. Yeah, and it seems like everyone's scrambling to do that right now. And just looking at what's happened in just the last few years, you've got Marathon and Beyond went away. Competitor Magazine, where I worked, is no longer, still has a website. Runner's World is now down to, I think, every other month. Every other month, I believe. And yeah. if, if not less frequently than that, moving forward. Where do you think it goes from here? Just not any specific publication, the running media industry in general. Yeah, I think eventually everything's going to be digitally and then they're going to figure out how to charge for digitally and have like true firewalls that when you pay a set fee, you you get by all those firewalls and uh, and have all that access to content. So I still think people... I mean, people still love to read and they're willing to pay for the right content and good content. Uh, but, but do you, do but you think by not having a free option or something that is more readily accessible, you potentially turn away new oh, runners? Yeah. Well, that's one of the things. I think you're always going to have a, a free option that would be like a little daily news of here's what's happening and running kind of thing and just little snippets of what's going on and Part the morning shakeout newsletter for those of you listening at home. <laughs> yeah, part of a story. Uh, but, you know, things like podcasts that you're doing are pretty popular because I always say a thing like a podcast, you're connecting with people when they're doing their passion. People are going to listen to this when they're out on their run and they got that sweat going and they're enjoying their run and, you know, they're connected. And so there's a lot to be said for that. But it is, you know, it is a challenge. I think the some of the really large brands like a New York Times, Washington Post, they're going to set the standards how everyone else will follow. And New York Times is doing it. You know, there's a fee you pay and you get so many free stories online. And their subscriptions and, are way up right and now. There's, yeah. So I, I think that's the future. Uh, but someone, these big brands are going to set the framework and then the little ones will follow. And obviously you're not going to be able to charge as much as someone like the New York Times. But, but you get it. The basic... Framework is what's going to be popular, and that's what people will do. And then it'll become normal to pay for content, digital content. And then no one's going to think like, well, I think what gonna... happened when, it, when it, it, the, the web happened so fast, everyone just threw free content out there. And why not? Because we're still building our brands by getting awareness and things like that. Well, and the web supported the print publication, right. and that's not the and case anymore. Yeah, that's how it was in the beginning. So we were like, yeah, bring it on. But, that, uh, you know, we got to make... Publishing people, they got to make the change. Do you, you have to charge for digital content. Well, these days and it's to be only successful. going to increase the quality too, because people right. aren't going to pay good money for crappy content. Yeah, and you know, as long as you have a, a good brand, a strong brand, and good content, people are willing to pay. 
let's bring it back to you for a bit and go sure. back even further yeah. to your origins in the sport of running. How did you get started in the sport? Yeah, so I was so lucky. I made a change when I was 21 years old, like 21, 22. I thought, you know, You're I 62, 63 now? Yes. Okay. Yep. Just getting ready to turn 63. So, you know, I knew I wanted to change. I wasn't leading a healthy lifestyle. I wanted to drink beer and smoke pot. And I thought that was the cool thing to do. And I realized this is not what I want to do. And, you know, when I started running, it was really not, I never thought of being a runner or doing races. I just wanted to get healthy. I wanted to get fit. And I knew it was going to help me out. And uh, so I started running. Uh, next thing I know, I'm running every morning, and I'm loving it. I'm really, you know, but three or four miles. And uh, I always tell people I wish I could have taken a selfie when I did my first run because I had on a Budweiser T-shirt and cut-off jeans and tube socks and pair of kids. You know, we all start somewhere. I started as, a, you know, That's I, another <laughs> part of the beauty of the sport. Yeah. You don't need a lot to get started. You don't started. need a lot. No, I proved that. But you know, if if I came back from that first run where I made it a mile in my cutoff jeans, and people would have said, "Oh, you work at Runner's World. You run races all over the world," I would say, "Yeah, you know, I'm just hoping I can run a mile tomorrow." <laughs> like I'm not thinking. So, you know, I wasn't thinking of of running as a as a sport. I was thinking of it just to get me in shape. And then my older brother, Which was a George. rare thought back then because most people yeah. weren't running for fitness. If you ran, it was because, as you had alluded to earlier, you were racing. You were Amby Burfield. You yeah. were Bill Rogers. You were out there trying to do marathons and win races. So I, I really was using it, you know, as, as fitness. And, uh, and then I did start leading a healthy lifestyle, and it did make a lot of changes. And then my older brother, George, he said, you know, I think you could be good at this running stuff if you really took it seriously. And I said, well, I don't know. I'm just happy to go out and run. And he, and he, ch- he said, okay, listen, I'm gonna, we're both going to go to this 10-kilometer race, and the challenge is on, you against me. And I said, okay. And I thought, there's, n- there's no way my big brother could beat me in a 10K. Not impossible. Man, he beat me in that race. <laughs> I could not believe how fast he ran. And, uh, but I was hooked. And that's when I realized that... Uh, hooked on the sport. Know, I was hooked on the sport right then, yeah. When I went back to my car, for, for people that didn't run back in the day, when you got back to your car after a race, your windshield was covered in entry forms from other races. And, you know, now everything's digital. But back then, other race directors used to go to a race and stick all the other flyers in your windshield. So you come back, you pick like 10 flyers. I realized all these races I knew nothing about were, you know, in my hometown. So I... Man, that was it. I was Signed racing every weekend. And, uh, Seed was know, planted. And then I challenged my brother. I said, okay, the deal is on. you got to race me in this 10K. And I beat him the next time. And then, uh, but, that, he, but he lit the fuel. He, he lit the fire. And then he fueled me to keep going. He said, trust me, you can be good at this. I think it's a smart thing for you to do. And, but he was smart enough that not to make, you know, he wanted me to do all the hard work and wanted me to do everything, but he encouraged me to stick at it. And he said, read everything you can, be smart about it. I think you can be, you can be really good. And I, I own the world for that change because, uh, <laughs> you know, when I think back, if I didn't make that change, you know, I tell people a lot, I really believe running saved my life because if I had kept that other lifestyle, I wouldn't be around. And uh, I proved that to myself one day. I kind of wrote a bunch of names down of people I was hanging around with back when I was 21 years old. And when I got, I listed about 10 or 12 people, I realized none of them were alive when I wrote their names down. So literally, running saved my life. So when you have that kind of... Uh, passion and, and uh, reasons to spread the love of running. That's what. Uh, that's why I, I I never turn down an opportunity to speak to a running group, whether it's kids, you know, older folks in the nursing home. I didn't care where I would. If I had the opportunity, I was there. I was ready to spread the spread the love of running. So this was in your early twenties. Yes. Had and you started working at Runner's World, I believe. In I was thirty. Thirty. Yeah, yeah so thirty-one. Let's yeah. kind of fill in that gap right there. Sure. Did you have any other job during that time? Were you always oh, yeah. working in? Running? Oh yeah, I always worked, but I was. Uh, you know, I never. You do? I never wanted to do a, a serious job. I really thought 
I could be a pro triathlete, so I did a bunch of triathlons, and I was decent. I could win triathlons, but there wasn't enough money. I was going to say, I probably couldn't make much money back then. The no, early I got 80s. a lot of free bikes and stuff like that, but it wasn't it wasn't making a living. So I never really wanted to have a real what I called a real job. You know, I always worked because I had rent to pay and stuff to do, but I really did a lot of odd jobs, and just but I loved it. You know, I was never afraid of hard work. Uh, but you know, but it supported it your lifestyle. It supported my lifestyle, and I trained like crazy, and rode my bike like crazy, and did all the crazy stuff. But but you know, when like I say, when the Runners World Connection came along, I realized there's an opportunity I cannot pass up, and I got to not worry about trying to be a whatever I wanted to be. It was really time to like take on a real job and real benefits, and and make a go at it. And thank God I did, because it, uh, it, it was the opportunity that I thought it would be. So I'm interested in coaching. Have you ever coached other runners? And this is going to lead to another question, which you can probably see coming, but let's start there. Yeah, I do coach runners. You know, in the beginning, it was uh, just coaching people that were in the running club. People would come to me for coaching advice, and whether it was to finish a 10K or just start running, or whatever level they were at, we had different programs to help them out, and I was actively meeting people and helping them out. And then uh, eventually I coached a few people in a, in a group where we would meet for, you know, Tuesday workouts and Thursday workouts on the track, on the hills, different types of fartlek workouts and long runs and all that kind of stuff. But it was, but it was really not, uh, it, was, it was structured in a way that it was fun to do. And, uh, you know, I tried to help, obviously, people of all levels. Uh, but then it came to, uh, once I started traveling a lot at Runner's World, it became a, a lot harder to do. So I kind of backed off on the coaching stuff. And I always help people. Uh, and these days I coach a few people. I coach people that I call people that are coachable. Like when people come to me to want me to be their coach, the first thing I do, uh, I really find out their personality. I, don't, I always tell them, look, I don't want to draw up all these plans and work with you if you're not going to follow it. So once I find out people, what I call are really coachable, they're going to actually do what I ask them to they're do. Committed. committed and stick to the plan and trust the plan. Then I'm willing to coach them. And I do have a couple of people like that. I just had a guy who, who went from a 407 marathon or 417 marathon to 307. Uh, now that was cool to experience. And, you know, he's going to Boston this year and he just hit a whole new level of running, but he committed to doing it. And he did every workout the way it was designed to do and sent me his weekly reports and all the stats, and it was awesome. That person was, was what I call coachable. Some people, you know, you send them a play, training program, and they go, well, I'll do this and this, but I don't like doing that. And do, I, was, oh, yeah. I, yeah, I don't want to do that because I don't want to waste my time. It's all a cart for them. Yeah. Take yeah. what I want, I'll leave what yeah, I don't. I, I, yeah, and I, and I get emails from people that say, you know, I followed your program to a T, but on Tuesday I did this instead of this, and I did this instead of this on Thursday, and on Saturday I did this. I'm like, oh, that's the, following it to a T means you actually did exactly what was in the program. I don't know what you missed on that. that uh, You've got to trust it. You've got to trust the coach. You've got to yeah, trust the you, plan. You've got to trust the process. Yeah, and that's what it's all about. If you don't, I, I just don't want to waste my time. So if people are willing to trust, like you say, trust everything, trust the process, and, and, and have a long-term goal, get to Boston, break four hours, finish a marathon, those are the people I like to coach. So you're well-known for a number of things, some crazy adventures, stories that you've told. We'll get into a couple more of those before we yeah. wrap up here. But you're perhaps best known for these things called Yasso 800s. Oh, it is yeah. a oh. specific workout. Yeah. And it's always funny because I've met more people than not who have no idea that it's actually named after a person named Bart <laughs> Yasso yeah. or that he came up with it. They just know yeah. it as Yasso 800s. And if I run 10 by 800 in three yep. minutes with a lap jog, then that means I can run a yep. three-hour marathon. And we'll debate uh, yeah, yeah. tongue-in-cheek whether or not sure. that's actually true, but where yeah. did this idea or this sure. correlation between these yep. 800s and marathon time come from? Yeah, so first off, it's not based on science, and, and I'm not a professional coach by any stretch of the imagination, but... Uh, I was rooming with Ambie Burfoot at the Portland Marathon, and I was running, I think, Marine Corps in like three weeks after Portland, and we were doing some doing pace groups at Portland or whatever we were there doing. And I said to Ambie, 
I got to go out, you know, it was Friday, and uh, I said, I got to go out and do my 10 800s, 400-meter recovery so I know what shape I'm in to do the marathon in Marine Corps in three weeks. And he looked at me kind of funny, and I head off to this track due to my workout, come back. I had all this stuff on my watch that I kind of wrote down. You know, we didn't have all the downloads. This was back in the early 90s. You couldn't download it. no GPS, in the, yeah. Yeah, you couldn't download it in your computer. But, but we did have splits back then and could save splits. So I had them all, and I told Ambie about this, you know, why I do this in the workout. And I said, it really works. Like, it really shows me my fitness level and what I'm capable of doing. And, I, you know, again, weather is dependent on race day and stuff like that. But it really gives me a barometer of my fitness level. And Ambie was just fascinated by it. And so we get back to the office, and three weeks later, I run Marine Corps, and I hit it right on what I told him I would do based on that workout. And he said, he said, we got to do something in the magazine on this. So I said, okay. So I said, I, I said, I only know it works for me. I don't know if it's going to work for anyone else. And a few people I coached it worked for. So I sent them all the info I had, and uh, back in a, on a floppy disk, and he, he took that floppy disk, put it in his computer, and started writing this piece on Yasso 800s and then uh, named them after me. You know, that wasn't... When I was doing them, I didn't call them Yasso 800s. It was 10 times 800. But Ambie said, listen, you got this crazy name that... Uh, well, originally, I didn't know that they were going to call them Yasso 800s originally. But then when this piece came out in the magazine, he said, trust me, this, you have such an unusual name. It rolls off the tongue. It yeah. really does. And he said, it, this is going to stick. People are going to do these. And I said, you're crazy. This is going to be in the magazine. People talk about it for a month. By the time the next magazine comes along, no one's ever going to know what you're talking about. That was the early 90s. Just and, the heyday of runner's world. Yeah. And uh, it stuck. And so people still do them. They still call, like you said, they call them Yasso 800s. They have no idea why they're called Yasso 800s. People that know me know, obviously, but it's it's kind of funny. It's, uh, But it really, for me, was just this coincidence, correlation that I would see. I'd love that workout 10 times 800, 400 meter recovery. I was always told, go to the track, do five miles worth of hard stuff. Recovery is half of what you're doing. Five times a mile, your recovery is 800 meters. 10 times 800, your recovery is 400 meters. 20 times 400, your recovery is 200. That's what I was told to do. And, you know, we did ladders and different track workouts, but that's what the the best runners that I knew back then that I looked up to, that's what they did, that's what I did. But my favorite workout just happened to be that 10 times 800. I don't know why, I just felt it was... The 800 was long enough that it, you got some endurance from it. But it's it an was honest short enough. Yeah, it was short enough that you get leg speed and long enough that you get the endurance. And I thought, I just, I, you know, it's a brutal workout when you warm up three miles and do some strides and then 10 times 800 and do cool some more strides afterwards and, and then three-mile cool down. It's a, it's a cool workout. Yeah, you get a lot and, of volume in. And yep. coming at it from a coaching perspective, I think it's a great workout. It is something that regardless of what you want to call it yeah. uh, or how you came to that correlation should be a part of almost any true, I, I don't want to say true, any serious marathoners yeah. training program because it is. It's an honest workout. Um, but the intensity of it is obviously a lot higher than your right. marathon pace. So for me, I mean, if I'm running 230 800s uh, and I'm like, oh, I'm in 230 marathon shape, that's five-minute pace, right. you know, and marathon pace is, is 540, so there's no direct correlation right. there, but it is a workout that, oddly and interestingly, is appropriate from an intensity level almost across the board, yeah. uh, I would say, for for most marathoners, but where it's interesting as a coach is I'll write that in someone's training schedule. 800s are, asking yeah. any of my athletes, it's sure. a staple workout for them, whether they're training for 5K, 10K, or the marathon, and the duration and the recovery and the intensity varies. And I'll put that on a marathoner's training program. Be like, oh, I'm doing yassos. Yeah, that's what and I hear people. No offense to you. I'm like, no, no, you're doing, you're you're doing, doing 10 by 800s. Yeah. And I don't want you to think just because I have 304 on there that 304 is your marathon time. Um, yeah. But if you want to believe that, you know, that's great. But I might think that you can go a little faster. Maybe, you know, you're a little bit slower. But for where you're at right now and what your other workouts have shown, that seems to be appropriate. But it's yeah. always it's always funny to me when that I, comes I up. I call them 10 times 800. <laughs> I, I never uttered the words I'm going out to do 
Yasso 800. So there in you my go, life. people. Bart Yasso himself <laughs> says I, I say I'm going out to do 10 times 800, 400 meter recovery. But it is, if, if someone's called, I, you know, the, it's like Yahoo or Google or whatever. It's a fun it's name. Just a people just right. say, like, if you go on Instagram or Twitter, you're going to see Yasso 800s everywhere. But people say they're going out to do Yasso's. They don't. You know, so people have fun with it, and people know what they're talking, what you're talking yeah. about, when and you they say know what that. you're talking about. And you know, someone said, "Well, you, people shouldn't call it that." Someone said that to me recently. I said, "I, I totally agree with you, but people do like it. Let them have fun with it." <laughs> yeah. I mean, when Andy Burfoot did the piece, he wasn't looking at it like, okay, you know, like like you would with a serious coaching plan. He was looking at it like, like people would actually do this because it's very simple to figure out. You know, it's hard to in a magazine to put, okay, do one times 600, one times 1,200, two times 800, one times 600. You know, they, people are like, what's he talking about? Yeah. So coming from Ambie's perspective, he said the simplicity of it, 10 times 800, 400 meter recovery. You can't screw that up. And, and for me, as I said with my athletes, it's a staple workout for them. So right. we might start early on in the training program and they're doing six, you know, and then we right. do seven or eight. And then we do... You know, up to ten, sometimes sure. twelve, depending yeah, on. I hear people do twelve, de- depending on who it is um, and yeah. their experience level and, and where they came from. And if you can progress from doing six at a certain pace to eight to ten, if nothing else, you can uh, see whether or not it's a direct correlation. Right. You know, your fitness has improved, and yeah, I think that's sh- what you have to take away from it. Yeah, absolutely. And and when people say that you shouldn't call them Yasuo, I always say, yes, the eight hundred meters was around long before I was around. Yeah. I don't own the 800 meters and then don't claim to. And, you know, every once in a while, someone will say me, send me a thread and I'll say, oh, my God, the people are bashing Yasuo 800s. you got to get on this thread. And I say, no, I don't. I never said to anyone in the world ever that Yasuo 800s work for anyone but myself. And that's exactly what I told Amby Burfa. I said, I know they work for me. I'll show you the correlation. It might work for you. Logs. Give it a try. Yeah. But I, I never went to anyone and say, you know, if you do Yasuo 800s, you'll get to Boston or you'll get a PR. I never uttered those words to anyone. You know, it's, but it cracks me up all the... All do you get more Yasuo. questions about Yasuo 800s than anything oh, else? than anything else, yeah. I get a lot of injury prevention questions or when people are already injured. And after injuries, and I'd say it's injuries, training advice, and then the Yasuo 800s. So we got five, six minutes here before we have to head out for our Q&A here at the Richmond Marathon Expo. Last two things that I want to touch on with you. You had mentioned Lyme disease. It's something that has affected you multiple times over the past several decades and most recently has really started to affect you uh, and your running. It's not something we often talk about because it's not a common injury. It's not common to a lot of areas that people live in. But it can be a very debilitating thing. So let's just quickly sure. as we can dig into that and how it's affected your running and your health. Yeah, I first contracted Lyme when I visited Connecticut. Did a 50-mile race, finished right around six hours for 50 miles. I was really psyched, you know. That's like fast seven, time, man. 7.23 per mile, yeah. I think it is, for 50 miles. I felt pretty good, and I thought, ah, this is my distance. I'm going to crush this 50 miles Well. I didn't know that when I was there, I got a tick bite. And when I got home, I just felt like I had the flu. You know, I, and I just couldn't run. I just, well, just felt awful fever all the time. And, you know, go to the doctor. Oh, this is wrong with you. You'll be fine. And, and I, didn't, it, I didn't get better. And then uh, over time, I was eventually diagnosed with Lyme disease back in 1990. And I got over it and felt better, got back in the running. and uh, But it never really leaves you. Ne- it doesn't, no. And it was, it was just harder to do higher mileage and to really push. But I got back to a fairly good level, and then I contracted it again, and I got really sick that time and has Bell's palsy and a lot of paralysis on the right side of my body. It was I was pretty beat up for quite a while and got back at it again and won a marathon down in Knoxville in like 98 and I thought okay now I'm back and you know I got running pretty well again I ran Cal International which you're gonna do and I remember I was like 43 at the time and I ran 241 I thought okay I'm back I gotta like get my miles up and get serious about this and then contracted it again and they were all different bites you know I would I just couldn't escape this, uh, this, these ticks, and probably because I trained on the trails all the time. 
Uh, but I, yeah. And then I got it again just two years ago. And uh, it just really did a lot of joint damage, mostly on the right side of my body. So when I go out, today I ran three and a half miles. And I'm telling you, I was doing probably 10-minute miles. But to me, I felt like I was winning the Boston Marathon. Like I felt good. It wasn't so much that I, I, I was running a pace. I just felt like I had a stride and I could run. And, man, that's a good feeling. I mean, I, three and a half miles, but <laughs> it made me happy. I, was, I got back from that run this morning, and I was happy for like two hours. I, I couldn't come down from the running high just because I felt good. Uh, that only happens to me about one out of 20 runs. Most of the runs I head out on, I usually end up walking and have to give up because the pain is just too much. Uh, but it is a debilitating disease, and it's, uh, it really hits a lot of people, you know, that northeastern corridor from Maine all the way down through Pennsylvania and the New Jersey. It's down in the Maryland. It's pretty, pretty rugged stuff, and it's hard to avoid the, the deer tick when they're in their the, the young stage. They're the, like a pepper flake. Like they're on your body. You don't even know it. I eventually found all the bites that I had when I got diagnosed, but... It's just a crazy thing. But what, what advice would you give to other runners to avoid? Yeah, so Lyme boy, disease? I mean, you do the tick check, which I always do, but still, it, it's hard to. Uh, it's just, it's almost impossible when they're that small to to pick them out. But you still got to do the tick check. And when I run in areas that's really prevalent to ticks, I wear high socks the best I can and try to cover my legs. Uh, the best I can, so you don't pick up the ticks. I do a lot of preventive stuff, but it's still inevitable. And people don't realize you can get it sitting in your living room if you got a cat or a dog that goes out, and you know the dog or cat know the ticks on them, and they kind of get rid of them. And then the tick wants the next warm body to come along, which could be you sitting down on the couch. That's what pe people have this misnomer: like you got to go in the middle of the woods and get a tick. Ticks actually love to be on mice and are in your backyard. It's not like you, you don't have to go into the wilderness to find them. Bottom line, and you just got to be careful. You really got to be careful. And some areas, it's, it's almost inevitable. If you're really in an area that's just infested, uh, you know, unless you want to live in a bubble. It's, uh, but it's not, it, trust me, it's, uh, it's really hard when you're running. Uh, but, you know, it, it makes me keep things in perspective. I, I take the good days I have when they do happen, man, I am literally on a runner's high. It's, it's pretty cool when I get one of those good days every once in a while. And today was one of those days. Last question before we head out here yeah. to do our Q&A at the Expo. Now that you're retired and still involved still. on a slightly lesser yeah. level than you have been for the last three decades, what legacy do you hope to leave on the sport of running? Yeah, I just hope that people, you know, I, as I talked about earlier, how they they. They, I want them to know how much they inspire me personally and how much they inspire others. And I just want people, you know, if you get an opportunity to speak to a group or to talk about running, take advantage of it. Don't say, oh, you know, I, I got nothing to say to these people. If they ask you, if they're coming to you for advice, you got something to say. So get out there and, and uh, you know, I always, I, when I would walk into my office every day at Runner's World, the thing I would do is I'd close my office door and I'd say, okay, today I have to figure out how I can get someone who doesn't think they're a runner today, doesn't think they could ever be a runner to run. And I, I, you know, I, I always said if I can just get them to a, a running store that has a running group or to a running club that has a running group or convince them to do that first 5K race, the running community takes over and they're hooked and I don't have to do a thing. But I, had, I felt I always had to get them that first step and convince them, you know, people always thought I was a collegiate professional runner, which is not true. So I, you know, I said, hey, I, you know, I went out for this mile run 40 plus years ago and look what happened to me. If it happened to me, it can happen to anyone. My tagline, never limit where running can take you physically, geographically, emotionally, spiritually. It's a powerful, powerful program, but it's just up to you to be part of it. 
Bart, we could go for another few uh, hours no, here, no, you're, but you're, we can't. So I might have to have you back for around two, maybe <laughs> three right, at right, some man. point. But Bart Yasso, Mayor Emeritus of Running, thank you so much for your time. This was a great conversation. Thank, really thank, enjoyed it. Thank you, man. Keep at it. All right. That's a wrap on this week's show. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed it and if you've been enjoying the Morning Shakeout podcast all along, please do me a favor and go to Apple Podcasts or wherever it is that you consume audio content and leave a rating and a review. Only takes a few minutes, but helps other listeners to discover the show, and it really means a lot to me. Many thanks to those of you who have done so already. If you would like to support the show directly, you could do that at themorningshakeout.com slash support. Your direct support via Patreon helps keep the lights on here at The Morning Shakeout and allows me to continue producing this show week in and week out. Much gratitude to those of you who have supported the show. That really means a lot to me. Finally, thank you to John Summerford of BearsRecords.com. He's the man behind the audio magic here at the Morning Shakeout podcast and helps the show sound as good as it does week in and week out. Thank you, John. That's all I've got. Until next time, I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of the Morning Shakeout podcast. Mm-hmm.